Thank you, Warren. Well, we are in First Peter and beginning this new series here. We finished up our series of Summer in the Psalms, and we'll launch into this fall here in the book of First Peter, one of my absolute favorite books in the Scriptures here. If you've noticed in the West a shift of increased hostility to Christianity and a culture that used to be able to plan on a generally privileged status, a luxury of sharing Christian ideas and freedoms, then you're not alone. Truths that were generally agreed on have been moved to the margins, haven't they? A majority truth has shrunken to a minority you may have felt more at home in the, in the culture, but now you feel like an outsider, in exile. There may have been many luxuries or privileges you enjoyed because of your faith, but now you're seen as just one belief among many. You may have noticed in the past opportunities to have greater control over society, but it may have noticed that that power has significantly weakened. You may have seen that it was easier to maintain a Christian status quo, but find that harder and harder. You may have observed in the past many Christian opportunities and ministries operating as institutions in the culture, but are seeing less and less. And you may have seen a culture that is more like Babylon and Rome than it is Mayberry, and wonder, how then shall we, not li- how then shall we live? And perhaps like Dorothy... You say, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) If you are wondering how to live in Babylon and Rome when you used to live in Mayberry, God wrote a letter to you. And this letter lays out how to thrive in Babylon when life has been moved from the center to the margins. Home has changed to you now being a sojourner. Political control shifts to gospel witness and testimony. Maintaining a Christian status quo has morphed into us as missionaries into an apathetic or hostile environment. And institutions returning to disciple-making movements. In other words, how does Jesus build His church when the church does not have affluence and honor in a society and culture? This letter answers those questions. And in fact, Jesus' church is designed to thrive, not in affluence in society, but when it is persecuted. Oh, we're not at the point like our dear brothers and sisters in Iran, in China, and at the extreme end, North Korea. But we can see it in the distance. we got our eyes open. And the question is, will we be prepared? And if we are to be prepared, we must prepare now. In other words, Peter in this letter lays out how to navigate what Jesus said. Being not of the world, but being sent into the world. Just like the Son of God Himself and the commissioned apostles were, and we ourselves are. So this morning, I'd like to launch this new series here in the first letter of Peter to the church, Thriving in Babylon Between Two Worlds. And to set the stage, as Warren read here, Peter frames our identity that will never change in a changing culture and society. 
He frames our identity together as a church to begin to have the mind of God about the church His Son will build. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The first thing I want you to see from this letter in the introduction, we're only going to do verse 1 today. Don't worry, we're going to we'll pick up steam. But as an introduction to this book, we're only going to do verse 1. And what I want you to see right away and very obviously here that the letter does not represent good advice here. But this is a binding apostolic word for the church. I want you to hear this and not, and not pass over it here. This is authoritative, this letter. It is not irrelevant. It is not written for only the people in AD 60 when many people believe this letter was written. But it is absolutely authoritative for King Jesus' church as we near 2020. It's not good advice that we can filter through and chop apart. But this is the binding apostolic word for us as the New Testament is on how to thrive in Babylon as we live between two worlds. You'll notice how he introduces the book, Peter. He's using his nickname. That wasn't his name. His real name was Shimon Simeon. That was his Hebrew name, his Jewish name. And Jesus in Matthew 16 calls him Peter. Peter, little rock. Little rock. Because God would use him to have an important part in the church with a message of the church that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's the authorized representative of the king, his Peter, and he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he is a capital A apostle. He is an authorized representative of the king to us. He's older and wiser than he was when he was first introduced to Jesus, when Jesus called to follow him. And he is giving us authorized truth to operate on. And he's seeing the church right then operate during the reign of Roman Emperor Nero, who was a crazed narcissist, who sees this movement of Jesus followers as parasites in the kingdom of Rome. And who's begun, and then really hasn't reached fever pitch yet, but he's begun to impose empire-wide hostility to Christ's little gospel communities that have been formed around the Middle East. And Peter's probably writing from Rome. If you read 1 Peter 5.15, he says, I'm writing and greeting you from the church that's at Babylon. He's probably referring to Rome as the Babylon. And his protege, John Mark, as John Mark was to Peter, that's how Timothy was to Paul, John Mark was, was, was Peter's protege, and he's writing through his secretary Silas, the one who traveled with Paul on one of his missionary journeys, to say, to say stand fast, what you are experiencing, what you are seeing is normal, and this is how to operate it in God's grace. And he writes these words in chapter 5 and verse 12, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother to you, as I suppose, or for this purpose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. This is a portion of the world, as Peter has 
in this life here. He's risen to a, a, a prominent leader in the church, and Paul was a prominent leader in the church, and James was a prominent leader in the church here. He's risen to this time period here, and God's using him, and it's, he's writing to this portion of the world. It's just modern day Turkey. This is eastern Turkey. Near, this would be near uh, Azerbaijan, these particular provinces he mentions in 1 Peter 1 1, uh, the, the, the country of Georgia, Armenia. Uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, those are places that we would know today. And the, he lists these provinces here in probably a certain order, the order in which a, a courier would deliver this letter here as he traveled roughly in a circle here. And so the very first truth you need to understand is this is obviously, and we sometimes we miss this, we need to be reminded of this, this is God's authoritative word to us. This is God's authoritative word to us. The second thing I'd like you to notice here, and Chapter 1 and verse 1 is there's something they needed to be started out on. There's a track they need to run on that would help them as they navigate this. They needed a mind shift. They needed, there's something they needed to believe. There's a mind shift that they needed to have, that they need to have down, that they need to understand. And they first need to understand their identity. And he describes them as strangers scattered throughout. Strangers scattered about. He describes them in a term that, that, that uh, uh, describes their, their underpinning relationship to God and the result of that, their relationship to the world they're sent into. And he uses that word, strangers, twice. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 1, as we read. And he also uses it in chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, I'm urging you, I'm begging you, as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The word actually means uh, the idea of an exile, a refugee, someone who is from a different kingdom, but now is living in another kingdom alongside of that other kingdom's uh, residents, citizens. They're living alongside the world's citizens. And what he is conveying in this thought is this. Believers who have been scattered abroad, You have a king, and you are part of an eternal kingdom. Your permanent home is eternal, and you are representatives of his kingdom as ambassadors. And his kingdom, God's kingdom, is on a collision course with the kingdoms of this world. Your values at your core, representing Jesus, are to be different than the values of the regular average Roman citizen who does not know God. And here's why. Because what you live for is different. What you base your life on is different. You're to be holy as He that has called you is holy. There's a letter that was written um, a, a few decades later. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. And it's written by a Christian explaining to um, the, the Roman government um, the, the differences uh, between Christianity and the way uh, the rest of the world operated here. How they were from a different eternal kingdom. And he writes this. And you'll have to excuse the language of his, of his day. This is how he, he wrote. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. In other words, you wouldn't recognize differences with your eyeballs necessarily. 
They're like the culture in that sense. But the course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men. Neither do they, like some, proclaim themselves as the advocates of merely human doctrines. But, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives, and respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country. There is a missionary spirit there. And every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry as... Do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are sailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. And that's the description here of a pilgrim, a sojourner. Things they could embrace in their culture and things that made them distinct. And they are on the edges. They do not have the same privileges as the world citizens do because they are ruled by, uh, uh, because the, the, the world citizens are ruled by a different prince than our king. And folks, we are exiles. We're refugees. We're scattered abroad. We should not find refuge here. There will be hostility. This is to be expected. Look at what he says in chapter 1 and verse 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations or various testings. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Having your conversation or your lifestyle, your manner of life, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, he says expect that, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold or see, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 15, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Chapter 3 and verse 9, Not rendering evil for evil, or railing, or insult for insult, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that you are there unto call, that you should inherit a blessing. Chapter three sixteen. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil against you. So notice in these verses, there's hostilities, there's trials, uh, there, there, there's hostility, trials, there's, there's going to be temptations. He says, they may speak evil of you as evildoers, but they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. Your good conversation. You see, there will be a hostility. There's a collision course with God's kingdom citizens, right? And this world's kingdom. This is to be expected. Our king's unseen. 
He is he has been rejected. He is disgraced in the world's eyes. Our temples are not of hands. We don't point to this beautiful temple and say, this is where our God is. No, our temple is not made with hands. Our temples are the bodies of the church and the body of the church. Our priests are you representing your king. Our sacrifice is once and for all and has already been made. So there's a negative side to this, right? If you're a stranger, you're a sojourner, you're a pilgrim, this is this is it should arrive as no surprise that this is what's going to come, right? But being a stranger, a sojourner, isn't not about what we're ultimately what what we're against. It's about what we're for. And this is how he describes uh, uh, the, the 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 people in these areas here. Uh, as, 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 as a way of reframing their eternal perspective for good. This is what this means positively as well. Because there is a positive side to this, yes, we are not to participate in the sin and value system of the world. But we do engage our world because we are sent ones into our world. And this is what it means. We are to live alongside and the things and culture we can embrace and we're to represent the King in them. We're to live as missionaries. And the backdrop for this, many commentators explain, is think of Israel as they lived among the Babylonians in the Old Testament. And I'd like you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Israel, as a general whole, had been sent to exile into Babylon to live among their enemies because of their sin. And God tells the believers who had been uh, who had experienced this exile, "Here's how you walk in faith, and here is how you walk in right relationship to myself and to others." And in Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine. And verse 1, he tells the reason why he's writing. He said, now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the residue or the rest of the elders which are carried away captives and to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. After that, Jeconiah the king and the queen and the eunuchs, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem and the carpenters and the smiths which departed from Jerusalem. There was a bunch of people that had been sent to live in Babylon, their enemies, right? And there were some false prophets who were saying, what you need to do is you need to rise up against Babylon and start revolutions and revolt and be free. And God says, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh. This is how I want you to operate while you're in Babylon. He says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of Israel, to all that are carried away captives, whom I caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build you houses. And dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take you wives and fathers, sons and daughter, and fathers, sons and daughters, and take wives of your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray to the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof that you're seeking, that you're to seek there, shall you have peace. 
And then he pronounces a curse on those false prophets here. He says, here's what you need to do. When you're in Babylon, you need to live. You need to live. You need to have babies. You need to have grandbabies. You need to build houses. You need to settle there. But your eyes are settled on an internal reason. And you're to have a witness as I have instructed you from the very beginning to be a light to the Gentiles. You're to seek the peace and welfare of that city for in doing so as you engage and you bless when your initial uh, response might be to retaliate, God's going to do His work through you. You're going to represent Me. You're to pray for it. You're to thrive in Babylon as people between two worlds. You're not to listen to the false prophets who said they're destroyed, but you're to represent the life to the pagans you live beside. You're to see this circumstance as an opportunity to show forth the praise who had called you from darkness to light. To quote Peter in 1 Peter 2.13. You know, you sometimes hear some discouraging things even from other Christians who say, boy, I'm glad I don't have kids in this age. And you know what you're communicating when you say things like that? Boy, our God couldn't handle this. Our God's not eternal. His circumstances are way too much. And that's not the encouraging thing you need to communicate, is it? And that's not how we're to live in fear. But we're to live boldly. And we're to live in power. And we're not to have the spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Because, friends, we are living in Babylon. And it will continue that way, that perspective, uh, while, uh, uh, while the Lord tarries. But we don't need to live in fear. We can live in boldness and confidence in our God. He's the one who gives us strength. And history is full of examples of this, isn't it? Think of Abraham, right? Called out from his comfort zone to live as a sojourner, right? Because he had his eyes on an eternal city. Think of Joseph, ripped in horrible circumstances and jealousy and envy out of his family to go live in Egypt. And how did he live while he was there? Everyone he encountered said what? They knew, and Moses repeats this many times as he's recording the story of Joseph, they knew the Lord was with him. One of the kings, the pharaohs of Egypt, says this, the Spirit of God is in him. That's boldness. That's living and thriving in Babylon between two worlds, isn't it? Think of the servant girl in Syria to name it. A girl taken captive who could have just despised and given up on life. But she knows that geographic location and cultural differences does not separate her from the one true God. And she could live in faith in Him. And one of my favorite examples, Daniel who actually was one of these people who Jeremiah was writing to. Who, as he is taken to Babylon, along with others, there thrive in Babylon. Who draws clear distinctions, doesn't he, about holiness and living for God. But yet ministers in a pagan government and does well in it. And ministers for good and seeks the welfare and peace of Babylon. And regardless of what happened, the consequences... And those who plotted against him because of the lies, he stays faithful. 
He doesn't retaliate. But He blesses. And He's a blessing. And so here's what this means here. That we are to be distinct from the values of Babylon, but at the same time, we are to navigate Babylon here and thrive in Babylon as a representative of our king. Do you think he can handle this? He can handle this. you think he's worthy of this? He's worthy of this. And it is for this reason, we who do not live self-indulgently for the flesh as the pagans do, right? We're different there. But we're to seek and to bless others. Here's what we need to understand, and Peter will, will drill this in several times in his letter. The return of Christ. The return of Christ. The return of Christ. And he, and he portrays the return of Christ to these believers in an eternal hope and in an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for them. It is a certain thing. And he does this not so they would withdraw from society, but so they would engage in it with the light of Jesus Christ. Because here's what they needed to understand. Don't live self-indulgently for the pagans as though this world is all there is, right? But seek to bless others. And why should you, think about it from the human standpoint, why should you bless a culture that is against you, right? Plus, our future inheritance is secure as it is, reserved. And if we're going to be a blessing in this world, it's going to be hostile to us. It's going to create tension. And if chapter 1 to verse 13 is true... Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that it is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we can stand in this tension of longing for the return of Christ, right? And making all things new. And at the same time, the place and people around us matter, and God wants us to engage in that because He's returning. Because think about it like this. To stand in the true grace of God, as he says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, means to be committed to blessing others, even with the hostile unbelievers, because of our eternal home. We can set ourselves aside to serve the needs of Babylon. Because whatever may happen to us, as we give our lives away, persecution, suffering, and ungratefulness toward our efforts. Chapter 4 verse 12, he says this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Whatever may happen is not for the pilgrims of Jesus the final say, is it? And nothing that happens to us is ultimately a catastrophe, is it? And Jesus' return actually doesn't make us run into the hills and hide and, and fear and wait till He returns but to seek the good and be a blessing in this earthly city and not revenge. Look what he says in chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be sympathetic, be compassionate, be pitiful, be courteous, tender-hearted, not rendering evil for evil or insult for insult, railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, know that you are there unto call. That you should inherit a blessing. It's because of our eternal inheritance of a blessing that we can be a blessing to others. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile or deceit. Let him shun evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue or pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But... 
And if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear or reverence. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened to the Spirit. And so what this book is going to tell us as you... Walk on this as we walk on this journey together through First Peter is live as a sojourner. Don't get attached to the core values of the world. See the things that are temporary. Be separate as God is separate, and be invested in blessing and serving in Babylon as God's ambassadors through God's word. Because God can use you to bring Babylonians into His kingdom. And you know where the power for this is and the example for this is? Peter keeps going back and forth to Jesus as our example, as our power. Chapter 1 and verse 21, look what he says. Who by Him, the one who is who shed His precious blood, who by Him do believe in God, that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. In chapter 2, and verses 4-9, through nine, I'm not going to read them all, but He says, as Jesus was rejected, as the cornerstone, as the stone rejected by the builders, you also will be rejected, but you're living stones. And Jesus is going to use you, in verse 9, to call out of darkness what he's, uh, the praise of Him has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And live as sojourners, as pilgrims, as strangers. Abstain from fleshly lust, as Jesus did. In chapter 2, verse 21 to 25, He describes... Uh, uh, Jesus as He endured suffering and mockery of the innocent one. And He says this, for even, verse 21, for even here too were you called, but Christ also suffered for us, leaving as an example that you should follow His steps. That's what He says in chapter 3, verse 18 that I just read. Christ, the, un, the just for the unjust to bring us to God, died, resurrected by the Spirit. And here's what He says in chapter 4, verse 1. This ascended Christ, He says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is what he says in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Don't think it's strange. Rejoice. And he says in verse 13, Rejoice when the suffering comes inasmuch as you are what? Partakers of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. That's a paradigm shift, isn't it? That's a renewed mind there, isn't it? And we close with these words to us all. Chapter 5 and verse 10. 
but the God of all grace, who has called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect or complete, establish, stabilize, strengthen, settle you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the perspective that Peter invites us into and commands us to in this wonderful letter that tells us how to navigate Babylon as a representative of Jesus' kingdom. Let's pray and then we'll sing.